This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Well, that just about takes care of that, doesn't it? Come live the nightmare of your choice. <laughs> Tales from the Dark Side. Another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. And I'm Gil Adler. Our guest in this episode is a, a guy who, who you know, he's done so many fascinating things. He, he's, he's such a, well, I guess, been getting right down to it. John Harrison is the total movie making package. I wonder if he could sing. Now, there's a question. Well, <laughs> he, he, he certainly has, he can story tell. You certainly can. And uh, here's the proof. You really are the, the, the total movie-making person. You, you, you write, you direct, <laughs> you produce, you, you, you do the score. Uh, God, I, if, if you could sew, you, you, you really would be the, 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 the whole shebang. Well, I get bored easily. <laughs> where are you originally from? You live in New Hampshire now. Is that where yeah. you're from? No, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, which is how my career really got started in filmmaking because I was a musician for a while um, oh. in my younger days. I mean, I kind of was, a, I've been a working professional musician pretty much all my life. And uh, after school, I was on the road for a few years working with a guitarist named Roy Buchanan and touring with him and making records. And then I came Where'd back you go to, to Pittsburgh. School? Well, uh, I went to Emerson College in Boston. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. And Carnegie Mellon in oh, Pittsburgh. Wow. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. So, uh, what, what did you, what did you study? Let's, uh, let theater, let's theater, not okay. filmmaking, interestingly enough, not filmmaking. It was theater yeah. because, uh, there weren't any, the films, they did neither one of those universities had film programs. So I never went to film school, but I was lucky enough to be back in Pittsburgh when George Romero yeah. was really hitting his stride. And because my partners and I had a small little production company and we were doing commercials and industrials and we raised some money and did a low budget theatrical. We encountered George. We all became friends. He was a dear friend of mine and one of my mentors yeah. all my career. Yeah. We started working together and that's how my career as a filmmaker, such as it is, got, got started. And it was also the opportunity because back then uh, it was really independent filmmaking, yeah, truly independent. Yeah, yeah. There was no Weinstein Company or Miramax or Fox yeah. Searchlight or any of those things back then. We all had to do a bit of everything. Yeah. And we were doing, I think it was Creepshow. And George, I was his assistant director. And he mm -hmm. said, you know... I've been thinking we need a theme for this. I said, well, I've got some stuff and I'll tinkle out some things. And one thing led to the next. And that's how I got involved in doing film scoring. <laughs> and you've done quite a lot. A few, a few, yeah. Yeah. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. They must be destroyed. 1978 and Dawn of the Dead, you're the uncredited screwdriver zombie. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an interesting story because I got a call from the producer who was a dear friend of mine, Zilla Clinton, and she said, John, George wants me to call you and see if you'll come out and do a, a you know, a bit, a, a zombie bit. 
And I said, well, you know, it's like seven o'clock at night. I mean, what's going on? Because they had to shoot at night because they had control of the mall. Uh, and so they shot all night. And I, he said, well, uh, we've got a continuity problem. In right to left, one of the lead characters is running and he's got a, 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 a sweater attached to his waist. But on the reverse, he doesn't have the sweater. Everybody forgot about it. So we need a gag to get the sweater off. And I said, well, look, I've got a, a big pitch tomorrow with a local bank to sell a commercial. And, you know, I got to be on, you know, <laughs> so I can't be out there all night. She said, oh, no, 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 no. The gag will take 50, 10 minutes. Just come out. Tom Savini will make you up. You'll do the thing. Well, of course, I didn't get on the set until about two in the morning. <laughs> and uh, they did the gag. Savini had rigged up this screwdriver. So I tackle the actor, Scotty Reininger, and I tear yeah. off the uh, the sweater. So in the reverse, it'll yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. reason he yeah, doesn't yeah, have yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And then he stabs me in the ear with the screwdriver and fills my ear with blood. So I get home in time to take a shower and take a nap, and I get up and I go into the bank, and I'm talking to this vice president, and he's looking at me weird, and I'm doing my pitch, and he... I said, is there something wrong? And he said, well, are, are you okay? <laughs> I said, yeah. I'm, he said, well, you're bleeding out of your ears. <laughs> I, I hadn't washed it all off. Oh, boy. <laughs> we, we got the job. So Cool. <laughs> Good. There's a happy ending. Yeah. You should have well, used that. You should have used that and said, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't usually bleed out of my ears, but I, when I get very nervous about not getting a job, yeah. it happens. <laughs> If, yeah, if you don't give me a job, I might collapse right here right, in your office. Right. <laughs> George Romero was very particular about how he wanted people to perform as zombies. Well, he's created the zombie style, the zombie walk. I mean, there is the 28 Days Later kind of movement now. And, and when they did the remake of Dawn, um, uh, they, they had them move fast. His whole thing was, well, look, man, they're dead. They're all messed <laughs> up, man. So they're not going to like run at like 80 miles an hour. So um, he had a very kind of, he would act it out. He would show us, you know, what to do. What makes a great zombie movie versus, or a great zombie show versus a crap zombie show? Oh, wow. Well, I by mean, me. They, they, they can't all be good, can they? Well, no, because it's a trope and you can do it over and over and over again, but something else has to be there for yeah, it to yeah. be, you know. So my feeling about George's movies is that they had great characters and they also had something to say about the milieu in which they were made. I mean, if you look at Night of the Living Dead, uh, <clears throat> the whole racial component of it, and then Dawn of the Dead, the whole consumer component, and then you get to Day of the Dead and it's really like, okay, well, society's fucked. And now what do we do? And we're trying, we're living underground and we're really trying to, we've got the military on one hand, the scientists on the other, and the twain are not going to meet. And how do we survive? And um, to me, and I think George would agree with this, you know, he said, I was never really making movies about zombies. I was making movies about us and what would happen in those situations. Toby Hooper felt the same way when he was doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's, yeah, yeah. It really isn't about a, <clears throat> a family cutting up people just for just for the fuck of it. It's it's making a statement about about what the modern world has done to us all. Yeah, I think that George was 
incredibly successful with it. And he created a genre, you know, which has spawned all kinds of imitations and, and other things. And um, one of his acolytes, Greg Nicotero, is running Walking Dead. Right. And has and also running the Creepshow series. And we've tried to really uh, honor the the uh, origination of it. You know, we've updated them when we can, but we're not trying to reinvent the wheel and call it Creepshow or Day of or Walking Dead and say that it's something else or make it something else. When you go to score something like Creepshow or, or, or the George's movies, what, uh, how do you approach that? What's, what are you looking for to spark that first, to, to spark the first notes flowing? Well, that's kind of hard to answer because those kinds of That's things usually, yeah, <laughs> those kinds of things are usually like, you know, you're sitting there and you're just like banging away at something. And, oh, that sounds cool. And yeah. you'll try and do it. And obviously you're influenced by the other guys that have done it and uh, the great masters uh, and not just the horror. Matter. I mean, I, I, I love movie music, so mm. I've got a collection of scores and stuff. So, I never wanted to just write scary music, as it were. But the difference for me, and uh, it was really an advantage, is that because I was George's assistant director, yeah. I was there on the set with him yeah. day in and day out. And, you know, it's very rare that a, a composer has time with a director. Not uh, forget the time I had, but even a, a, a long length of time. There are the exceptions, you know. There's the Bernard Herman and 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 um, Hitchcock. There's Spielberg and Williams and you know Joe LaDuca and and uh, uh, you know people who are able to have a relationship long term with yeah. a director, and then you can really get into get into their heads uh, creatively. And so sitting with George day in and day out. And he had a great musical sense. We could talk about it. And he could say, you know, we need something here, man. Why don't I, we do... But, you know, but, but there was an even deeper connection. I mean, granted, those composers had long-term creative relationships with, with particular directors, but your relationship to, 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 the, to the, the film itself, you were there day to day. You were, you're basically managing the floor. Yeah, and 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 really realizing what George is trying to do creatively. Your so, your understanding of the storytelling is on a, a a completely different level. I don't think any other composer. I'm not aware of any other composer who's ever worked as a first. You're right. The situation I had was unique. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, insight, it, insight. Then the other thing was which was really interesting, as opposed <clears throat> to being delivered a cut at the end. Um, I was there through all of post. So, um, for example, on Day of the Dead, um, I literally set up my gear downstairs from the editing rooms and Pat Booba, who was the editor, and George would slide VHSs through the mail slot <laughs> and I would hook them up and watch the scene. And they'd say, okay, the, here's the scene. What do you think? Huh. I would sit there and I would noodle a temp. Huh. Now, I had some gear, uh, you know, I had a couple of uh, music processors. They weren't, I didn't do the whole score on them, but it was enough to give George and Pat a really good idea of what I wanted to do. I would run it upstairs, transfer it to Mag, lay it up, 
And then we would see, well, this works, that doesn't work. Maybe we should, how about if it's shorter so it will hit here and hit here? And, so, and that was all the way through post. So by the time we got to the mixing stage, I basically temped the whole movie. And all mm -hmm. I had to do was go into a recording studio and re-record it so it had the right quality. But it was already laid up. And then, and George, being the guy that he was, he always wanted me there for the mixes. That's really unusual. Most composers, they get the cut. You got six weeks. Give me the score. Yeah. And that's that. To me, music is as much a story element of a, a good movie as dialogue or cinematography. If it's done right, and I, that doesn't mean that the music should tell you how to feel or, or necessarily. It should support what you're supposed to feel. But um, it, it can really be a story element of any good movie. I mean, if you think about the great movies and the music that just is in your mind because of those movies. Really? Uh, I mean, Gil, you, you've always said that, that whenever you've approached directing, you start with, what's the music? Yeah, I, I would always start with the music. Uh, is that right? Oh yeah, I never, and it never really dawned on me that I was doing it overtly. I would just, that, that's where I would start. I would, even when we, Alan and I would write something and if I was gonna direct it, the first thing I would do was I would spend agonizing hours thinking, okay, what what's the style of the music? What, and so when I did what's cooking the the the, the episode with uh, Christopher Reeve and, Matt, and Meatloaf, you know, I, I was like, well, this this has got to be the, the music has to add something to it, and 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 what what style? And I went back to early Louis Armstrong. Because oh yeah, no, yeah. No one really listened to early Louis Armstrong except nerds like me. <laughs> and so I said, I, I, that 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 could work because that sort of juxtaposes the action in a way that's kind of clever and yet cute and and smart. And then that led to me that led for me to figure out shot structure. I was going to say, were you listening to the music while uh, as you were prepping? Yes. So and you I'm would be you would have it in, in my, your mind. Yeah. Yes, and I was listening to the music in my head as I was shooting. Ah. Because I knew, okay, I wanted to be like this, like early Louis Armstrong, you know, this kind, this, this rhythm or this slow down bluesy. The pacing. In my yeah. head. You know, it's funny because not many directors have a musical sense. A lot of them, I'll know it when I hear it, or, you right. know, I like yeah. it, or I don't like it, or I really don't know what I want here. I've been in uh, pitch, uh, not pitch meetings, but, you know, production meetings where uh, the director will be there and, um, the composer will be there. Well, where do you, you know, you're spotting, right? And yeah. well, I don't know, should music go here? Or shouldn't it go here? And it's when right. they kind of look, they're flailing. What you're doing is is really great. Yeah, and it really helps me a lot. I mean, it's really out of uh, self-preservation that yeah. I, I did it because it, 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 it enabled me to open up my head to, okay, that's that and the other. And then when we did in Bordello mm -hmm. and, and we got Michael Kamen of all people to score it with Chris Boardman, you know, when we sat down with them, I was able to say, well, you know, I mean, I'm looking for you to tell me kind of where you think the music should be, because you've done this so many more times than I have. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking I'm thinking it's it's this kind. It's this kind of music for that. And it's this kind of music for over here. What do you guys think of that? You know, how do you feel about that? Is that am, and am I'm I sure they appreciated that to have some kind of direction. Mm -hmm rather than just saying, you come up with the tone. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. the, the director should be the one that's talking about the tone. Yeah, and, and they were both great in coming up with stuff, having that <clears throat> kind of input from me, but they were also great in just coming up stuff that I would go, 
oh wow, that's that's even better than I was thinking that I had in my head. Yeah, that's even that's even more creative to, you know, to 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 the emotional integrity of the character. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. But it's yeah. great that they can have that relationship with you. Yeah, to get the guidance first of all. No, Chris Boardman and Michael were just the best. I mean, they were yeah. so, good, so good to work with and, and yeah. so creative. It was just a delight. Well, when you can get that relationship with a director and a composer and the shorthand is there, I mean, you can imagine the conversation between Spielberg and Williams. It's probably Ooh, like yeah. almost nonverbal at this point. Well, you you mentioned John Ottman, John Ottman, you know, and Brian, you know, when we did Superman Returns. Yeah. Um, you know, Ottman was the editor and the composer. And I, I always that's right. He's that, an editor too. That, yeah. That's and I always, combo. I always found that that like really, he's going to be the editor and the composer. I mean, does he really have time to think in both ways? And and yet, you know, when when we started working on the movie, and we got into the editing room after we shot in Australia for a year, it was like, wow, this this makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Pat Booba, who was at George's editor, and George by himself, it was not a musician, but he had an incredible musical sense. Um, I think that there's something about the the idea of cutting and pacing and rhythm and storytelling that an editor has that music can really inform. And so I can see that with Ottman being both. Yeah. And Pat was a classically trained clarinetist. So, yeah. you know, they they had the same sensibilities. Yeah, they did. They did. It It seems like Romero, as mentors go, really, well, he was a great collaborator. Uh, oh, he was. Who, who trusted everyone who 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 he he worked with? That's that's the idea. Some of that some of that comes out of the background of being in Pittsburgh with no money and no real support. I mean, you're basically yeah. making it up as you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, when we did Night Riders, it was a SAG, George's first SAG movie, and because of the union rules, we had to have production reports. And to get a good production report, you had to have things like call sheets, which George didn't want to know from. He wanted to like, hey, man, just call everybody at 7 a.m. and we'll figure <laughs> out what we're going to do. <laughs> George, you can't do that, man. You can't do it that way. It was the best film school I could have ever gone to. And then he created, he and his partner, Richard Rubenstein, created the television show Tales from the Dark Side, right. which was low budget, really low budget. But it was the same attitude. You wanted to make short films, but you all had to kind of pitch in and do everything because, you know, there wasn't an, a lot of money for everybody to have a definitive role, and that's the only role you did, you know. That cat has killed three people in this household. I don't believe this. Kill it, bury it, and bring me its tail. And, and George was like, he, he said, I'll take a good idea from anybody. You know, what, what was the organizing principle of Tales from the Dark Side as as a uh, an anthology? Uh, it was it was simply to continue the the whole uh, the not creep show necessarily, but the idea of anthology. Mm -hmm. um, George grew up with those. We all grew up with those comic books. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, loved that kind of storytelling. From a business point of view, it was great because there was a lot of syndicated opportunities back then, which don't yeah. exist now. Yeah. And so you go in and you say, I've got a low budget show that, you know, you can have a 
a 20 episode season for a couple of hundred grand. Everybody goes, yeah, okay, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, cost yeah. a couple of hundred grand to make one show. So that was it. And then they got great writers yeah. that were known in the genre. Um, they gave a lot of us opportunities, young directors that were just getting started. Some, some actors that uh, wanted to direct uh, that people that we knew you know, things like that. One of the reasons I asked what the organizing principle is, we've all done a lot of anthologies. Yeah. A lot, and anthologies are so hard, successful anthologies are very hard to pull off. It's very, you can do an anthology, you can do a couple of seasons of an anthology. The majority of them, frankly, just aren't that memorable. Well, no, but look at Crypt. I mean, how many seasons did you guys do? Seven or eight or something? Right, like right, that. right. Well, and 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 I would I would say because there was the franchise was so crystal clear on Crypt. You mm -hmm. you know it, it was you knew exactly what it was. Um, we will we're going to come very shortly to to a show that that we were all involved with called Nightmare Cafe. Well, let's, oh let's, yeah, let's, yeah, let's yeah. jump in. Let's jump into Nightmare Cafe. Suddenly, the, your involvement <laughs> with the George Romero world puts you on the map, and suddenly you are off and running, and and you're having yourself a career. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's let's just get you to that place. Okay, so you're doing Tales from the Dark Side, and then, uh, let's say the phone rings, and someone says, "Hey, John, we'd like you to direct an episode of this thing called Nightmare Cafe." All right, and, and you said yes. And it, right away. <laughs> okay, yeah, of course, of course. When we were talking the other day and I said, we talked about Nightmare Cafe, I, I said, do, do you know how Nightmare Cafe got on the air? And you said, no. And I said, oh, good. You know, we're going to tell you a story about, about a show you did. Because Gil and I were involved peripherally, I guess, in that show. So, and I never knew that. I think that might have been intentional. <laughs> <laughs> This all happened the first year that Gil and I were doing Tales from the Crypt. Uh, right. Apparently, before this happens, Wes Craven has a meeting on the books. Uh, he's going to have lunch with Brandon Tartikoff, who at that point mm -hmm. was was running NBC. Right. And the morning of the, the, the lunch that he's going to have with Brandon Tartikoff, Wes Craven is sitting there with his wife and son, his teenage son, saying, oh, I'm having lunch with Brandon today. I have no idea what I'm going to pitch him today. And the son, the teenage son, utters two words, Nightmare Cafe. Wes takes those two words to lunch with him, with Brandon Tarnikoff. And uh, I guess at some point they push back the plates and Brandon looks at Wes and says, what do you got? And Wes says, Nightmare Cafe. And Brandon Tarnikoff, boom, buys it on the spot. Sells no it in idea. the room. Yeah. No idea what it is. No idea. <laughs> Buys it on the spot. <clears throat> and then I guess they tried to, you know, reverse engineer whatever the hell this thing yeah, was. Yeah, then it's like the oh shit moment. Okay, now oh, what do we yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they go and they make a pilot. And Phil Noyce, Philip Noyce, the yeah. uh, Australian yeah. director, directed the pilot. Yeah. Uh, Gil and I are now running Tales from the Crypt, and we get a call can you come and meet with Philip Noyce to talk about a, sh a pilot he just shot for Wes Craven called Nightmare Cafe. And so Gil and I go and we sit down with Philip <laughs> Noyce. And first we are, I, we, we were shown, we were shown the pilot. Yeah. We, we watched it. And 
the question that Philip Noyce had for us was, what is, what is it? <laughs> what is it? Literally, they they had they 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 had to write the the rest of the of the season. Yeah. Uh, they made the pilot, and and Brandon didn't kill it dead. He said, "It's great. I love it." No one knew really quite what it was, and and I guess Brandon didn't have the the um, the sack to to look at Wes and go, Wes, what is this? So did they have the idea that it was the concept an anthology or was yeah. it just going to be stories about yeah, no it was, a, it was an anthology and, and anthology. Robert it was going to be an anthology yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it was always that around thing. the cafe and the two people that were in there and all that but what's yeah. the organizing principle i don't know yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah neither did we <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah we we could not answer the question and and we we had a show to run that we knew what the organizing principle was yeah sudden bam you stop and you're now inside the cafe. Now, I knew that the conceit was that there was this cafe with these two people who were dead. I'd seen the pilot, yeah. and they were dead, <laughs> and and um, they were in this purgatory of whatever in the cafe. Yeah. And people were going to come through the cafe, and their stories were going to get resolved somehow. So if that's what you mean by organizing principle, that's sort of what the story yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had to get the, them there to make something happen. Yeah, and those two people would help you do it, and somehow, I guess, they were going to hope that by doing this for however long, they would eventually move on as well. So what happened? Did you guys, because you guys were not involved in it when I was there. No, no we, we were never involved in it. We, we had the meeting and, you know, we re- sort of really didn't have a clue, uh, really wanted to meet the people who were making it. And that's why we went to the meeting. Was but Wes we there? Did he, did he say, what did he? I think Wes popped his head in. Yeah. Um, but he left us alone, you know, with uh, with the director. Yeah. Um, and then we went and then we looked at each other and, you know, headed for the hills as quickly as possible to go back. to <laughs> thank, thank, yeah, goodness well. this is, thank goodness this was someone else's nightmare cafe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, mean, it had a lot of potential, but I, I don't know did. what, you know, I don't know whether NBC just dropped the ball and said, ah, we don't want to do anymore. Or... You know, it it was it, it was complicated. It was a complicated concept, and and I think that that was, you know, tells from the crypt was simple. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think I think if I think if Wes were smart, the the best thing that could have come out of that whole thing was he should have hired his son as head of development. <laughs> there you go. Hey, he he at least had had some direction. Well, Jonathan uh, was there for some of it, but I don't know. He was young and kind of untested, and I'm sure the network was probably saying, "Well, we need, you know." Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Fortunately, we all ended up doing Tales from the Crypt. In yeah, do you remember the show that I did for you guys called The Pit? Yes, well, yeah. hey, the the Wayne Newton episode. The Wayne Newton episode. You remember, like every day, Wayne would fly his jet down from Vegas. Right. He would fly it. Him and his wife, they'd come down. And Gil, you you had somebody pick him up at the airport every day yes. in Van Nuys yes. and drive him over to the set. Yes. And he'd be on the set all day. And then he'd go back and fly back to Vegas to do his show. Yeah. And I was like, Wayne, how the fuck are you doing this, man? Yeah. And the last day, I remember he was so exhausted. And uh, for some reason, the schedule had worked out that we were doing a lot of his scenes in his apartment where he's watching the, the fights yeah. and talking to the two guys and chaos in the cage. 
And he was so exhausted. He was like literally sweating, you know, because to just stay on his feet and remember his lines. But he was such a trooper. I was on, blew me away. And a really nice man. I mean, I would say to him, we'll we'll put you up. Can, can, Can we just put you up one night? I mean, so that we can break it in half, you know, stay two nights yeah, and then yeah. go back and forth two nights, stay one night. And then, and then you can, you know, run for the end, uh, you know, sprint to the end. And, and he would say, no, I'm okay. I, I, I'm not fine. I, I kind of like it. I, I relax when I fly. I, I, and I would go, okay, but, but, you know, we could do that. We could put you up. There's not a big deal. If we put you yeah, up, please don't crash before you right, finish. The right. <laughs> Truly. First episode you directed was was Easel Killia with Tim yeah. Roth and and, and uh, William Atherton. Yeah, boy, that was fun. That was really great. A and script it, by Larry Wilson. Yep. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, I I loved that episode because um, I loved the whole tone of it and I loved the whole what the story was about and the obsessive quality of it. Yeah. It had a really nice twist at the end. Tim Tim Roth was perfectly cast. Oh yeah. He was uh, great. And he came in to do his ADR and I said, Hey Tim, what are you doing? He said, Oh, I've been, uh, I don't know. I've been doing this other show. It's kind of a low budget thing. I think it's called jumping at the boneyard. He didn't even know what the title was. And of course it was, uh, Tarantino's first movie where he's playing. I don't know whether, whether he was Mr. Yeah. White or Mr. He was the, Oh no, he was the cop. Reservoir dogs. Reservoir dogs. Yeah. Hey, we we uh, we rub elbows with some interesting folks, don't we? Yep. You you also wrote two episodes when we went to England. You didn't. We didn't take any England with you with us, did? No, did, no. When you, I, we... I think you guys decided you were just going to use English. In fact, um, Russell McKay, he did one of them. He yeah. did horror in the night. Has Elizabeth McGovern. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then the other one was the kidnapper, I think. Yeah, that you uh, you co-wrote that with with Scott Nimmerfro, uh, and that oh, had uh, 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 Steve Coogan and uh, uh, Julia Sawala are are the leads. Wow, Steve <clears throat> Coogan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alan Hume was the DP on that, which is Alan Hume. Do you know who Alan Hume? The name sounds familiar, but I don't know. Why. Alan Hume DP'd Star Wars movies, Bond oh. movies, Runaway Train. <laughs> oh, just them. Oh my god, we yeah we 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 had him for a couple of episodes. He was our he was our he was our director of photography. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we thought we'd give him a shot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we try him see, out. See if he could keep up with the television schedule. Yeah. Uh, you also you 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 had the pleasure of knowing Scott Nimmerfro. Love the guy. Yeah. Um, It is. It it breaks my heart that Scott isn't here uh, swapping stories with us all. Well, he was I met him because um, uh, I was pitching Dick Donner, uh, who was a fan because of the work I did on Crypt and wanted to. He had a he had a deal to develop Hammer Film Library. That's right. Remember that? Of course. Yeah. And uh, they hired me to write up to adapt a book they owned called The Hiss was part of that. And and Dick really liked the script. But that's how but I worked with that's how I met Scott. He was with with Dick at the time. And so we we became friends. And then um, and then the kidnapper came up and he of course he was involved in in Crypt. And uh, 
Um, but uh, he was a really sweet guy. I loved him. I eventually did too, although initially I didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Init well, initially, had a very dry sense of humor. You know? Yeah, and, and all the, all those guys, you know, every one of those uh, people had uh, people like Scott working for them, Bob Zemeckis. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And they all thought that they were those guys. Yeah. You know, and they would come to me and they would say, "Oh, the, you know, this is this this script," uh, and we would get notes from like five different people. And they had no idea really what they were talking about. And sometimes we would get notes and I would go, do you, do you understand we'd finished shooting this episode yesterday? <laughs> you should have come to give us notes a week ago. I mean, Scott yeah. didn't do that. No, no, no. Scott, Scott, was, Scott initially was, had this arrogance about him because he worked for Dick Donner, which really pissed yeah. me off. So yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. clashed initially. Yes, yes. And I don't yeah. know what happened. It just got to some point where we just sort of started laughing at each other. And then we started working together. And then it, it was just it was just such a delight, you know, and, and we actually talked to him and said, you know, let's bring let's bring you on to the show. Let's bring you on to Tales from the Crypt as a as a would yeah. you like to do that? supervising yeah. writer. Yeah. yeah. Well, as a story editor or supervising story editor, yeah. whatever you want to we'll call you whatever you want us to call you. I don't care about that. But, you know, Alan, I would love you to. And he and he did. And he went to England with us. Yeah. And that's where I really got to know him a lot better. And, and, you know, and really, I mean, we really just would, would crack each other up all the time. Well, I got to hand it to you guys. How the hell did you manage Joel Silver, Bob Sebeckis, Walter Hill, Dick Donner? I mean, it's kind of amazing to think that these guys, these heavyweights, were kind of the executive producers of the show. And, I mean, I can only imagine what it must have been like to have these guys breathing down your neck. I mean, what the well, Bob let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. You knew me. I had long red hair and a big red beard. <laughs> and now I don't. <laughs> and now you don't. <laughs> Bob Z was was an exquisite collaborator. And yeah, and, and I, I, I see him as a mentor in, in, in many ways. Everything I know about collaboration, really, that man taught me. Uh, he is he's remarkable, remarkably giving as as a collaborator. Uh, Donner, lovely lovely man but he never really bothered us too much in what we were doing joel however was, was always <laughs> was always something else entirely well there was a force of nature <laughs> yeah and you know the the bordello of blood story is is really the story of of uh of really joel using our movie as a prop for another movie and so did Universal. We we were no one, no one really gave a shit about Bordello. No, no one wanted to make that movie. And and well, how did it get launched? I mean, what the, it was got, it? Just a it, there's a whole launch. there's a whole podcast about it called the Hell. Oh, okay. But the the short version is the mandate from Universal was to make three different movies, and the first movie is a really good movie called Demon Knight that Ernest Dickerson directed it. It's a, it's a terrific movie. It's you know, 25 plus years later, it's still considered a horror classic. Um, yeah. The second movie we were developing, we had a, a, a project that we had turned, it was originally a script called Dead, uh, called uh, uh, Fat Tuesday. We rewrote it and turned it into a thing called Dead Easy. It was a, a, a psychological thriller that took place in New Orleans, very different from the first movie. And we were, we were God. We spent weeks, six weeks in New Orleans prepping the thing. We were three weeks from starting principal photography in New Orleans, 
when Universal said, come home, you're not making that movie. You're going to make this other thing called Bordello of Blood instead. By the way, your release schedule is the same. You start the same. You start in three weeks. And the reason so you've they got want, three weeks, you've got three weeks to rewrite it, to rewrite it and start shooting and prep it. Prep it. Yeah. Oh, and God. the reason it was that they wanted us to make Bordello of Blood was because a little while before a brand new studio had come into being called DreamWorks. Oh. And Universal had lost a big piece of talent, Spielberg. They were afraid as, as DreamWorks was making deals, they'd lose another piece of talent, Zemeckis. And so they said, Bob, what can we do to keep you here? And, and part of the deal was nothing to do with us. It was, it, they, he said, you know, because he was always very, very good to, to his partner, Gail. <clears throat> Bob Gale. And so to help Gale out, he said, hey, if you were to buy the first script that Gale and I wrote when we were at USC, it was called Bordello of Blood. That'd be cool. Yeah, that was it. So Universal spent half a million dollars to buy a student script. And they made, okay, to their credit, a good business decision. Why eat to, why eat half a million dollars? So they turned around and looked at us and said, hey, He's an executive producer on your on your movie. His name is worth more on a script than your name is, you know, Gillen, and, and my name is. So you're going to make this movie instead. It was nothing to them. To them, this was a good decision. But they wanted you to fix it. <laughs> well, yeah. Hey, at this or point, they, gonna get, they, they weren't going to get Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis to fix it. No, <laughs> they were no, just no. going to take the half a million bucks. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you got three weeks go. So, you know, so it started, Bordello started that way. And none, we didn't want to make that movie. We didn't want to rewrite it. We didn't want to do anything. And then when we got to casting the three leads, Joel took over. And But, but, but to answer your question, I, yeah. the answer is, I don't know. Uh, I, I've worked with Joel for, I think, 13 years, making a lot of movies and yeah. television. Yeah. yeah. And, and it ended very, you know, abruptly and badly. When he threatened me and said, you'll never work in this town again. When Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who was running Warners at the time, yeah, said, yeah. I love what you guys, I love what you do. I want you making bigger movies for me here at Warner Brothers. And Joel yeah, heard And Lorenzo that. said, you will work in this town again. So, you know, and that was it. And, and But we had, we had worked together for, you know, more years than I care to admit to. And I'm as amazed as anyone else when I think back and go, how did that happen? How did I... How did we, I survive? How did you survive it? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I had very brief encounters with Joel. And it was always very cursory and, and very matter of fact. He came down to the set on pit. And uh, when we were, remember we had downtown, we had built the cage uh, at yeah. the, uh, whatever the arena was down there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was really proud of it because it yeah. was really a beautiful looking set. The actors were great. And he was sitting behind me. And I was saying, Joel, look at this. Look at what these guys helped me get to, you know. Da, da, da. And he kind of went, you know, and he just pointed back to the thing, you know, get back to directing. It's a great looking episode. You you, you have a great eye. Well, it, <laughs> the fun part was like, okay, we're down here. How are we going to make it seem like there are thousands of people in the stands? <laughs> Which, of course, we had none of. We didn't even have the cardboard figures in the background. So I had Rick Boda just light it like all dark, you know, around outside. But we did go up into the balcony and I put people in fact, you, you guys might even been part of it. I might have roped <laughs> you into it. And so I shot behind everybody so that uh, all you saw was silhouettes. 
and just like shoulders and crowded the frame so that you just see hands going up in the air and that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. we are in the smoke and mirrors business, are we not? Absolutely. I just finished a book, by the way, um, which you guys would probably love called uh, by William. It's a, it's a biography of William Cameron Menzies, the great art director, production designer, director who transcends the whole history of Hollywood really. But he started out essentially just as a, an artist, a, 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 almost like a storyboard artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you listen to some of the movies that he did and how from everybody from like Republic to uh, all the low rent places back in the day, uh, 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 what's the name that begins with an M? Um, anyway. Mutual. Uh, yeah. And, but he, he would do, he would do these movies and he would draw the, the front, he would draw the whole movie. Yeah, 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 because he knew that he didn't have enough money to build these huge sets. I mean, occasionally, like he 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 did he did a lot of work on Gone with the Wind. He did a lot of work on uh, um, the Shape of Things to Come. Those kinds of movies, but a lot of them, when he got a chance to direct, were very small. And mm. he would design them to be shot to look big, but he drew them so they'd only build part of a set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they'd only they'd only the way his <laughs> angles were were so evocative. And man, it's a such a great book. I've I've learned. I I want to get back out on the floor and try some of this shit. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Hey, everything old is new again, isn't it? Absolutely. Did you approach the Dune project, or the, did the Dune project when you did Dune for 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 sci-fi, or did that approach you? Well. Um, Richard Rubenstein was the producer and right. Richard goes way back to the Romero days. He was, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was George's partner. Yeah. They created tales from the dark side. We did creep show day of the dead. Um, uh, I did the dark side movie for them for Paramount. So I had a relationship with him what are they doing? and he called me up one day and said, look, I'm going to be in Los Angeles and we have lunch. And I said, yeah, he said, I've been, I've had some success with, um, turning books into miniseries. He had done The Stand, Langoliers. He had a good relationship with Steve King. And he said, I was looking for something to do, and I was looking at my bookshelf, and I came across this book. Have you ever read a book called Frank Herbert's Dune? I said, yeah, I read it. Um, I read it, you know, in college. And, and uh, uh, he said, well, I think I can sell this. Um, ABC is my partner. I think we're going to go to sci-fi. I think we can sell it. Would you be interested in adapting it and doing it? Um, we're looking for somebody to do that. And uh, would you put a pitch together for me? So, of course, I jumped at the chance. Mm -hmm. I had seen David Lynch's movie. Yeah. Was not a huge fan. Um, it was beautiful in many ways, but it wasn't the story. So I, I pitched it, and he loved it. And... Um, Sci-fi. All right. As, as you looked at the David Lynch movie, what did it miss? Oh well, uh, quite a lot. <laughs> um, without getting into the weeds too much, there was um, one of the main things that he did. Uh, if you if you know the book, there's a lot of internal monologue. Um, there are a lot of people thinking about what is going on. Uh, there's a lot of mysticism in the book. And um, so one of the things that David did 
uh, in order to get a lot of that across was he did voiceover. So there were a lot of moments in the movie where you suddenly were on the guy's face in a close-up and nothing was happening and you were just listening to this monologue going on. It stopped the movie. Um, the other thing that he did was um, there is in the, there's a, a use, the Benny Jester would have a use of what they call the voice. Mm-hmm. Well, he turned it into a whole trope in the movie about making it a weapon, which is not at all what the story is about. Those two things, you know, I thought, well, that, that's not, but the, but the biggest problem in the movie is that he's trying to tell this epic story in a two hour movie. There's too much story. And they had to hand out, I, when I went to see it, they actually handed out a booklet that told you who the characters were, what the plot was, what the significance of the relationships, of the, who the royal houses were, what the empire was. And I went to see it with my brother, and 10 minutes in, we looked at each other. My brother said, man, I'm lost. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't yeah. understand what's going on here. That was, that's the problem. That's why, yeah, it, it, it is not a movie. It's got to be bigger. And so De Laurentiis took it away from Lynch. So I, you know, he he uh. probably maybe if left to his own devices, uh. might have come up with an eight-hour epic that would have been fantastic. Yes, yes, yes. But, but, so uh, I got the shot, and fortunately, I had three movies to tell the story because we had th- three nights of miniseries. So I could really dive into it, and uh, just, I was just very like, like like a sandworm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the special effects look really good. You know, you can see some age around the edges, but you know, back then we were state of the art. I mean, they won yeah, Emmys. Yeah, for yeah, it. yeah. You can't compare it to 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 the latest you know, cinematic incarnation because they had way more money than you did. They had ten times the money. We yeah, did. yeah, yeah. But we did yeah. three movies for twenty million. I think they had two hundred million to do the first one. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really and truly, the, I, I think the sandworms are great. It's very compelling. There's, there's well, great stuff. I'm, I'm proud of it, Alan, because I think, and a lot of people, Frank Herbert's son, Frank wasn't alive anymore, but he said that his dad would really be proud. They, if, yes, it has, a, it's, it's a little dated in, you know, what is it, 20 some years now, 20 years. But people still, when they see it, they say, well, it's a great adaptation of the story. The story is all there. And I have to say, and I, I again, I don't want to sound pretentious about this, but I do believe that the success of that miniseries, because it was a big international hit, mm-hmm. kept the idea of doing it alive. Because after David's movie, everybody said, you know, this book is unfilmable. You cannot do this book. Um, it's, a, it's a waste of time to even try. But the success of it was, I think it kept it alive and you know, Richard and I are still involved in the in the latest incarnation, and it's been going on for about some years until they finally got Villeneuve to do it. You sort of cracked the nut, which was don't do it <laughs> as one. Yes. Well, when I heard that D- Denis was going to do it as one, uh, as two movies at least, it might be three, um, it was like, okay, okay, this is this can work. It required an evolution from the business's thinking that you could break a big story up into pieces and the audience would right. be okay with it. That's like a Lord of the Rings or right, exactly. Uh, you know, you know it, yeah, exactly. The business had the, the the guys with the money had to be had to start thinking outside their little box. Yeah. In order to accommodate ideas bigger than their box. Yeah. Yep. 
what else is new? <laughs> the audience came well, and the audience came around to it. Of course, you they know? did. You remember there was a a, a a Broadway play. It came from 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 London. Nicholas Nickleby. Oh yeah. And it, what it required of its audience was, <laughs> my God, you're going to spend two days in the theater. Two days. <laughs> You're going to go, you're going to have lunch, then you're going to have dinner. You yeah. keep it. <laughs> and, I remember that. And people loved it. You know, the if you tell a great story, hey, and, and the story makes us, is going to make us go outside the box with you, we will happily go there if you justify the journey. Well, you know, it goes back to play people like Dickens and everybody else, you know, storytelling over a serialized period of time. Yeah. Uh, draw people in and they want to stay with it. You know, people are dying to see the next Dune. Um, people were waiting every year for the next Lord of the Rings and the next Harry Potter. And yeah. Zombies. Zombies do and- not <laughs> ever get old. This is- well, they don't die, Alan. What do you want? I mean... <laughs> so they, they don't get old because since they don't die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You just finished a book. Did you write that during the pandemic, during during the shutdown? You know, as we get to certain stages in our career, things sort of change around a little bit. And, you know, uh, I'm not people aren't throwing scripts at me to come out and direct. So I got time and uh, but I've got stories. And uh, that's one that I've had for a while. And uh, a few years ago, I sat down with another idea, which I had been carrying around and I started to write it as a treatment. And I realized, well, you know, actually, it's starting to feel like wrong medium. Yeah, uh, it's it, it, it's reading like prose, and I bet if I just sort of concentrated on that, I could do it. And I had this other one, um, so when I had the time, I sat down and started doodling it. I wonder if, and it actually turned out okay. What was just from a, a writing process? Did it differ writing uh, narrative fiction? Uh, did it differ from writing a screenplay in the process? Well, structurally, of course, yeah. I mean, but um, it, yes, it did. It was, it's a whole different mindset um, because you're, uh, you're really putting yourself in the lives of the characters as opposed to visualizing what's happening with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether that makes any sense. You have to create so much more of, of the universe. The interior of the done. characters is so much more. I mean, you could just write it like this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. But I don't think readers find that very satisfying. I think they want to be compelled by the characters. Although I will say that having done a lot of filmmaking, especially for a book like this, it's a genre book. I mean, it's a it's a psychological paranormal thriller. Mm-hmm. So it has, uh, I would say that my filmmaking informed the narrative pace of it. You know, I don't I don't say I wrote it like a movie. You know, some books people say, oh, well, it's you know, the book is a movie. And I didn't write it like that, but, mm-hmm. it, but it, it, it was it had a know, visual sense. The, the thing about screenwriting is it because you must be as economical as possible with your words. You've got to locate. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You've got to find your inner Hemingway. <laughs> really. And, and, and yeah. it, it, it was good. He liked it. It was good. Hey, man, if that's all it takes to, to, right. for the actor to know what he's got to do and for all the department heads to know what they got to do, leave it at that. Hey, did you guys ever work with Fred Decker? Did he did he ever do any uh, scripts? He, he, he wrote did. 
Bef- well, before we got there. Before, oh, okay. Um, he wrote a script a long time ago, which I read, and it was like a real revelation to me about screenwriting. Um, it was called Ricochet, I think was the name of it. And they actually made a- Yeah, they did. Denzel Russell movie. Mulcahy, Russell yeah. Mulcahy directed it. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Well, Fred's script um, was so economical. You know how sometimes you get a script and there's like, it might've been Joel that actually said this, actually. There's too much black. <laughs> there's too much stuff on the page. Mm-hmm. It you know you have to read too it's arduous to read it yeah um, and so uh, yeah, too many words too many notes too many notes but and and it's written like uh, but people that's not what a film is like you just said Alan it's like it's very like right to the point and everything and that's the way Fred wrote in fact he never wrote a sentence that went all the way across the page right he wrote in bullets yeah. Because you really just want to get image, 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 image. And it's easier for your eye to go down the page than it is yeah. to go back and forth across the page. And, and, and I, I, I used to tell people, I used to tell people, look, when, when you're writing screenplays, there are no such thing as adjectives. Get rid of all the adjectives. Right. The adverbs, get rid of all the adverbs. Mm-hmm. Save right. the adverbs and the adjectives for a book. Mm. Yeah. The book yeah. needs all that. Yeah. Because you really have to build everything in the in the reader's mind, the color, the texture, the tone. Whereas in a movie, no, it's more about character and relationship and it's image, image, image. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Gil. And and so to to invest a screenplay with good writing is really a waste of time. (laughs) Who are you doing it for? Who are you doing it for? Um, So, I mean, a lot of my writer friends probably would hate to hear that, but you really I think you're right. It's image, 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 character, character, character. Um, and and I, action, kinetic. perhaps even the, the word impression, you know, impressionism. Uh, impression, you know, yeah. It's just da- just dabs of painting, man. You don't need long brush strokes. Dab, 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 man. And I've been working on that style ever since. I mean, I I read that screenplay and it was like, holy crap, this is is exactly what it should be because it was so exciting to read. And uh, you know, you could see the movie, right? Hey. Uh, and that's and, and that's really tricky because the screenplay format is not a writer friendly format. It's a DGA no. friendly format. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's a whole other conversation. Oh, yes. gosh, don't get that's another started. podcast, right? <laughs> Indeed. What is your book called? Passing Through Veils. Passing Through Veils and spell Veils. V-E-I-L-S. Like Those the veil. veils as opposed yeah. to Veils of Doom. Veils of Doom, yeah. No, it's um, it's about a young woman who is moving into a uh, townhouse in Georgetown, uh, which she's going to restore. She's just recovering from a massive nervous breakdown mm. of her own that ruined a really promising career as an attorney, high-powered corporate attorney. And, and you find out why, and all the reasons are part of the story. But as she's restoring this townhouse, she finds a walled-up vanity in one of the rooms. And in that vanity are some artifacts which uh, were owned by the woman who was murdered in the house some years before. And strange things start to happen. And you begin to wonder whether the ghost of this woman in the house is coming back for some kind of revenge or whether it's in our girl's mind. And then there's a big twist at the end as to what, who did what to whom. <laughs> 
Cool, cool, cool. Uh, when is it uh, dropping? Uh, August 15th. It's uh, released a uh, Wordfire Press, and uh, it'll be out August 15th. It's available for pre-sale now. You can go to Wordfire Press and get it and order it. <laughs> and we will we will link on our blog as as we just as we publish this. We'll 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 do everything we, we can. Oh, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll send you the cover. I'll send you the cover. You yeah, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please, you want please. The image you can put. But no, it's it was a great experience to do. Unfortunately, it's it's actually going to come out. Um, you know, there's not much money in the publishing business, but I don't care. It's like a creative. Oh, you know. What do we what anticipate? Do we, do we anticipate the book being written by oh god I don't know some really talented writer director that you have a close relationship with that might want to do it? Well, my agent, I you know I've said to him, see if you know take it out there, see if there's anybody that might want to, yeah. not necessarily for me to do. That might be a bridge too far, but. Um, I would not object if somebody saw it as, you know, because there are all these uh, great cable shows on now with young women in, in jeopardizing situations yeah. and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, or maybe a, a, a feature, you know, starring Sandra Bullock or uh, Reese Witherspoon or. <laughs> could, could it be stretched out into uh, 20, 30 episodes as a, as a streaming series? Uh, maybe not 20 episodes. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it could definitely be like an eight eight episode limited series. You there know, you for go. Sure. Hey, everything's outside the box these days. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you won't get any argument from me. <laughs> uh, John, it has been awesome catching up with you. I, yeah, it's been great actually, to see you guys. This is the longest conversation we've ever had. Even even the, you know, the times we worked together, I don't think we, we had a chance to sit down and actually spend quality time together. Well, no, because Gil always would get, get back out on the set, man. What are you doing? <laughs> Bloody <around>. taskmaster. <laughs> Wait a second, John. Get back on the set. What are you taking all this time talking about? No, I, why am I not writing? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, again, thank you so much for, for joining us, John, and, and sitting down with us. And Oh, it's been fun. Really been Good fun. seeing you, John. And, and next time you come to Vancouver, please call me. I will. Um, Send me your email address so I have that contact information. Okay. He absolutely okay. Have will. Alan send it to me. And yep. uh, we will see you next time, everybody. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called Terrell River Crypt Content. 